Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History. Now we're in the middle of our great World Cup Marathon, a podcast for every country that's qualified for the finals in Qatar. Um, All kinds of uh, weird and wonderful stories. And Tom, uh, I believe we are now venturing to the sands of Saudi Arabia. Is that right? We are. We're actually venturing to Mecca, the the holiest place in the holiest city in, uh, in Islam. And the holiest mosque in Mecca, the Majid al-Haram, the inviolable mosque, and the holiest spot within that mosque, which is the Kaaba. Oh. So that is the theme of today's episode. Brave choice, Tom. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, um, it, it's the most famous structure in, within the limits of Saudi Arabia. It's the most famous structure within global Islam. And it's... Um, for Muslims, probably the single most holy structure in the whole world, basically for two reasons. Yeah. Um, the first is that it it constitutes the Qibla, which is the direction that Muslims um, turn to when they pray. So that's what they're praying to. Yeah. Um, and the second is that it's the great object of Muslim pilgrimage. So, you know, you can go any time, but uh, there is a particular time. So it's um, it's a kind of... Uh, I think it's five, six day period in the um, the last month of the Muslim calendar, which moves around because it's a lunar calendar. So right. you can't absolutely pin it down. Um, and this is the uh, the Hajj, very famous yeah. uh, pilgrimage. Um, and it is one of the five pillars of Islam. So um, one of the, uh, the, the things that's absolutely incumbent on Muslims, if they possibly can, is at least once in their lives to to undertake yeah. um, the pilgrimage to Mecca um, and specifically to um, uh, to the Kaaba, and so you know, in non-COVID periods, you get huge numbers, um, yeah, millions of people, uh, millions. I think in 2012 it was over three million. The Saudi authorities said so. It's a, it's a huge, huge thing. And so, Tom, just before you go into the the history and you explain, because I've always been fascinated by what's in the Kaaba, and I'm, I'm hoping you're going to tell me. But just for people who don't know, so I'm looking at a picture of it right now. And you have the mosque. I mean, you, you often see it packed with people all wearing white, don't you? You have the mosque, and it's now nowadays it's surrounded by hotels and places where the pilgrims stay. And then in the center, it's a large black cube. Yeah, it, it, and it derives from the Arabic word, from the root meaning cube. So right. Kaaba cube. Um, it's built of stone. It's covered with uh, a, a great black silk covering called the kizwa which is embroidered with with gold um and in the eastern corner of of the uh, of the Kaaba you have a mysterious black stone uh and this black stone is very important because it's the the key for the ritual that's called the tawaf and what you do as a pilgrim you're supposed to is you're supposed to go and kiss or touch the the, the black stone but generally this isn't possible because there are so many pilgrims there right um but you know that's the ideal and then you go round the Kaaba in a kind of anti-clockwise motion. And as you do it, you recite the Bismillah, which is um, in the name of God, the most gracious, the most merciful, and the Takbir, which is Allahu Akbar. Um, God is the greatest God. And I think that 
I can only imagine that to be a part of that, I mean, it must be uh, an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. Because yeah. if you've ever seen it, I mean, the, the, the sense of the vastness of it, um, the sense of being part of a kind of single community must be completely overwhelming. And very few or, or, or indeed no non-Muslims living today have presumably ever seen it because it's prohibited to enter the Holy it City. It is prohibited. Yeah, it is prohibited. Yeah. 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 Although people in the past, I think I'm right in saying, disguised themselves and did see it. Am I right? Yeah. So Richard Burton is the the notorious one who yeah explorer who went um there is a you know the obvious question then is well why what's why are they going why yeah. does the kaaba have this this central role within islam and this is where you have the sense that history as it would be understood say by a secular non-muslim and history as it has traditionally been understood uh, within the kind of you know the, the the vast kind of matrix of Islamic belief and faith and the way that the world is interpreted aren't necessarily you know they don't necessarily kind of map onto one another. Yeah. Um, but I think it's impossible to understand the significance that the Kaaba has, even if you're not a Muslim. You put it, you you look at the history as it has traditionally been understood by Muslims to explain its its dare I say sacral significance. Because if you can't call the Kaaba sacral, then you can't really call anything sacral. Oh so Tom, I, this is your I, dream podcast. It absolutely is. So tell me, are you going to tell us first what Muslims believe the Kaaba to be? And then are you going to sort of deconstruct it? Is that your plan? Well I'm going to I, I'm going to I'm going to give you what Muslims what the traditional account is of the history of uh, of the Kaaba. Yeah. And then perhaps we can discuss what you make of it if you're not a Muslim. Fine. Entirely understanding that, you know, for a Muslim, it, it obviously has a different signification than if you're not yeah. a Muslim. So for Muslims, the answer to what the, the Kaaba is, is in the Quran, which is what you'd expect. The Quran, the revelations uh, of, of, of God given to Muhammad. He is the prophet who, who, who delivers these revelations. And um, Muslim scholars have identified 18 references to the Kaaba in the Quran. And there are two mentions of the Kaaba itself, but Muslim scholars um, have have argued that it is it's referred to in a variety of other ways as well. So it might be called the house, it might be called the sacred house, it might be called the ancient house. And there's um, the two there's one particular crucial section, um, and I will quote: "Surely the first house laid down for the people was indeed that at Bakka, a blessed house and a guidance for the worlds." In it are clear signs, the standing place of Abraham. Whoever enters it is secure, i.e., because um, you can't have any bloodshed permitted in the in the, in the area. It's 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 a sacred area. Right. Um, pilgrimage to the house is an obligation on the people of, to God for anyone who is able to make a way to it. So that's where you get the idea of this being one of the pillars of Islam, and and why people who can do it, you know, people who are healthy enough, have to do it. Obviously, that raises some questions. So um, it's described as being at Bakka, not, not Mecca, not Mecca or Mecca, and Mecca is mentioned later in the Quran. Um, so it's not immediately obvious that they're the same. And scholars have Muslim scholars have recognised this, and so there is a tradition that says that Bakka is um, the uh, the sacred site that surrounds the Kaaba, and Mecca is the city itself. Right, um, and it's uh, in the Quran. It's described also as the mother of cities, as the peaceful city. These are these are places that are also mentioned in the Quran. 
So, Tom, just to pause for a second to locate us for people who aren't massively familiar with the early history of Islam. We're in what? The early 7th century? Yeah. Um, so, Muhammad had his revelations, I think, when he was 40 years old. The first one, but they come throughout his life. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, the Eastern Romans and the Persians are kind of yep. knocking seven bells out of each other to the north, and Muhammad is having his revelations in his cave. That's the, um, the, the okay. traditional account. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, that, that's that's the historical background. Um so, so, uh, Mecca, Mecca and Bacca, uh, are they the, the same? Are they kind of, you know, they both referring to Mecca? So that's, that's one assumption. The other is, um, in that passage is why Abraham? So Abraham is a biblical prophet. He appears in the Old Testament. Um, he is, uh, the ancestor through Isaac of the Jews. And according to Muslim tradition, through his other son, Ishmael by, um, a, a concubine called Hagar. Um, he's the ancestor of the Arabs. And so he's, he's, um, in, in that he's, the, you have this thing, the, the place of Abraham that he is, uh, responsible in some way for the Kaaba. Um, and he appears again and again throughout the Quran. He's a very significant figure within it and within the, the, the history that is tr- yeah. as traditionally told about the Kaaba. Um, but the thing that people will probably have picked up is that the Quran, I mean, it doesn't give you a kind of straight narrative about this. The verses are quite elliptical. They're quite cryptic. They're quite enigmatic. Um, and adding to the, the complication in, in terms of, of, of trying to make sense of this as history is the fact that um, there basically aren't any other references to the Kaaba or indeed Mecca prior to the, um, to, to, to the Quran. And so the challenge of constructing its history is incredibly complex. Right. And a lot of what Muslim tradition says doesn't come from the Quran, but it comes from kind of elaborations about the Quran or various traditions that have emerged over the course of the decades and the centuries that, that follow the time of Muhammad. So what I will do now is give you a kind of a synopsis of, of what Muslim tradition, you know, and there are various variants of this, but I'll give you the kind of the, the, the most orthodox tradition, the standard tradition, what it says about why the Kaaba is as significant as it is. So it's in the Quran, as I said, it's, as well as the Kaaba, it's called the first house. And it's literally the first house because it's built by Adam, who is the Crikey. first man. Right. Um, and it is said to be an earthly replica of a kind of divine prototype that exists in heaven. Uh, and this is called the ever inhabited house. Uh, and it is said, according to Muslim tradition, that every day you have, um, angels thousands upon thousands 70,000 is the the favorite number who are going round and round it um singing songs of praise uh prostrating themselves in prayer um praising it, praising god and a vision of this is shown to muhammad he when he is he journeys from mecca to jerusalem and he then ascends um on a a, a kind of a magical horse a heavenly horse called the barak up into the heavens. And in the seventh heaven, he sees all of this. He sees the angels going around the Kaaba. Uh, and this all happens in one night. So it's a, it's a spectacular miracle. And so the Kaaba is, in a way, a kind of earthly image of this, uh, this, this glorious uh, prototype in heaven. Right. And it, it, has, it plays an absolutely key role in the sacred history of the earth and of humanity. Because it is, according to Muslim tradition, it's where the, the Garden of Eden stood. In Mecca. It's, in Mecca. It's, it's where uh, Adam was created. So the very spot where Adam was created. Yeah. It's where he names the animals. And he builds the Kaaba 
um, from stones that, again, according to tradition, are taken from the floor of, of paradise. So the, the original stones are from paradise and they're radiant. Um, and this is a, a time of darkness. They, they illuminate the darkness. And you remember the black stone I mentioned that? Uh, yes. Is, and you kind of touch it if you, when you, you start your circumambulation. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the most popular traditions, one of the most kind of vital traditions is that, uh, the black stone is the only surviving remnant of these original heavy, heavenly stones. So the rest of the Kaaba is therefore has been renovated. Is it's that been the claim? Swept, it's, it's, yeah. it's been obliterated by the flood. Oh, I see. So Noah's flood. It, yeah. It obliterates it. And people forget about it. People forget that it was ever there. And then Abraham turns up and Gabriel Jibril reveals to him the site and he rebuilds it with his son Ishmael. And again, you in, in the, the verse that I quoted, um, it says, it, 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 you know, there, there is this clear sign, the standing place of Abraham, which is Makam Ibrahim. Uh, and this is a stone that, according to Muslim tradition, is imprinted with his feet and it's still adjacent to the Kaaba. And this is the black stone? No, the black stone, oh, is, is is, stone. The black stone is embedded into uh, the the fabric of the the Kaaba, the the stone with the footprints of Abraham, yeah. the the Maham Ibrahim is next to the next to the Kaaba. Okay, sorry. So it's I, part of it's part. I got confused with the stones. <laughs> yeah, it is. It well, as well you may, because there are an awful lot of stones in this story, and actually the confusion, <laughs> the confusion in a way is part of the story, as we will see. Um, so so Abraham rebuilds the Kaaba, and he then. Basically, he's the guy who initiates the hard rituals. So the the circumambulation, yeah, the, okay. the, the the prayers, all this kind of stuff. So his his going to going to the spot where the carbon now stands. His his rebuilding it. His doing the circumambulation. This is the prototype for the Hajj that Muslims to this day are doing. Um, and of course, Abraham is a monotheist. He he understands the oneness of God, which is the absolute foundational. Um, concept within Islam, and he teaches the Arabs of of Mecca this this kind of radiant truth. But over the course of the centuries and then the millennia that follow the time of Abraham, the Arabs start to forget this, and they start to fill the Kaaba with idols. Yes, yeah. Uh, one in particular, Hubal, which is a, a, a particularly popular god, but there are lots and lots of different gods, um, and some of them go so far as to do the circumambulation naked. That is not good form, Tom. I think. And there's there's one couple, a guy called Isaf and a woman called Naila, who who go into the Kaaba and they have sex in the Kaaba. And Dominic, you've yeah. mentioned about being confused by the number of stones. Mm-hmm. They are turned into stone, so they become, you know, yet further stones. Right. And the Meccans start worshiping them. Oh no! And they start offering them sacrifice. So I mean, it couldn't be more wicked. Yeah. That because is bad behavior. you only offer sacrifice to God. You certainly mm-hmm. don't worship stones. Uh, you certainly don't worship stones that were originally people having sex. I mean, no. all of this is very, very bad, but it is all very lucrative. And it, it makes Mecca a place of pilgrimage for all the various pagan tribes who, who start to come around. This is where Muhammad comes in. He's born in Mecca, right? He's, He's born in Mecca. Mecca. He's born in Mecca. As you said, he has his revelation at 40. And basically it's God as um, Gabriel had had come to Abraham, so now he comes to, to Muhammad and he says, you've got to sort this out. You've got to clean up this town. And so Muhammad demands the destruction of, of the idols. He demands the end of idolatry. Uh, he, he preaches 
um, you know, the, 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 the truth, the, the demand for submission, Islam to the one God. And this doesn't go down well with the guardians of the shrine because they can see that it's going to damage their income. And so basically they end up driving Muhammad out and his followers. Uh, and this is the Hijra, the, um, the Exodus. He goes to Medina. From- Yeah, to Yathrib, which becomes Medina, the city of the prophet uh, in 622. um, But Muhammad is, is, he's he's down, but he's not out. Uh, And he and his followers, um, they make themselves uh, the bosses of of Yathrib. It becomes the city of the prophet Medina. And in 630, he is able to come back in triumph into Mecca. uh, And he overthrows all the idols except for one which is an image of, of the Virgin and the baby Jesus. That's, he, that's allowed to stay. And he burns the lot and he topples the stones within the, um, within the, within the Kaaba that they've been worshiping. Um, and as he does so, a woman emerges from one of the stones and she is, is a black woman with gray hair and she tears at her face with her nails. She's naked. She pulls at her hair. Uh, and she cries out in woe. And this is Naila, who has been brought back to life um, to witness the destruction of the stone that she had been imprisoned in. Crikey. Uh, and the devil is watching this and he summons all his progeny around him and he cries out in woe, abandon all hope that the community of Muhammad will ever revert to idolatry after this day of theirs. And uh, and so it happens because the Kaaba is reconsecrated to um to the worship of the one God, and it becomes the great center of monotheistic pilgrimage. And the tradition of the Hajj that had been established by Abraham is re-established. But right. I wondered if there was going to be a but. Okay, but there is there is a further cycle of destruction and renovation to come. Because uh, Muhammad dies, his followers uh, conquer a great empire, and a, a particular family rises to the rule of this empire. And this is the Umayyads, the, the dynasty. The, uh, the, the first of the Umayyad um, uh, caliphs, the rulers of the Islamic world, uh, is a man called Muawiyah, uh, and he's said to have gone on Hajj twice, and he's the man who first provides um, the Kaaba with the Kiswat, which is the great black silk covering. He dies, and he leaves behind a son called Yazid, and Yazid is, an, is, is a, a notorious playboy. So he's, he's debauched, he's drunk, uh, and the most sinister thing of all, he keeps a monkey as a pet. Oh, very, very bad form. Yeah, it's bad form. Um, and so, you know, this is does not make him popular with those who are um, devoted and austere followers of, of the teachings of Muhammad. Um, and there's one in particular, a guy called Abdullah ibn al-Zubayr, who is is very old and, you know, he's, he was a boy in Muhammad's lifetime, remembers him. So he's a kind of living link to the age of the prophet. And while Yazd is off um, conquering the Fertile Crescent and establishing his rule over the great cities of Mesopotamia and Syria and so on, um, Ibn al-Zubayr is retreating into the desert to the sacred house. Um, Yazd's army um, lays siege to Ibn al-Zubayr. Um, he bombards the Kaaba with catapults. He destroys it at the very moment when it looks as though um, the whole complex is going to fall, that Ibn al-Zubayr's is, uh, resistance is doomed. News arrives that Yazd has died. And his army, with that news, gives up its siege and drifts back to Syria. With his death, you have massive Umayyad infighting. And so Ibn al-Zubayr is able to, to kind of reestablish his authority and his control in, in the desert. 
Now, the problem that, that um, Ibn al-Zubair faces is what to do about the Kaaba, because Yazd's men and, and their catapults have destroyed it. So um, there's, there's a lot of debate among his, his, his followers. And one argument is that uh, they should leave it as it is. Uh, and this is argued by, particularly by a man called Abdullah ibn Abbas, who argues that, um, he, he, he argues that it should not be rebuilt because he feared that destroying it would set a precedent to tear it down and rebuild it. So in other words, if you rebuild it, that suggests that you can just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. Yeah. Ibn al-Zabair himself responds to this, by God, is there no one among you who would not mend the house of his parents? So how would you wish me to do otherwise with the house of God when I watch it falling apart piece by piece? And he consults and basically most people agree with him that it should be demolished completely, that the, 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 the ruins should be swept aside and it should be rebuilt from scratch. Not as it had been, so not as it, yeah. you know, the original, but, but it should be rebuilt as Muhammad had described seeing it um, in his vision of the original Kaaba, so the one in heaven. So it should be built to correspond to that as closely as possible. And all kinds of stories are told about uh, this process. So we're in the we're in the six eighties or so now, Tom. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But we're also very much in a dimension of the supernatural. Yeah. So various stories are told about the process of the rebuilding of the Kaaba. So it's said that um, the original foundations that had been laid down by Abraham are miraculously rediscovered. A mysterious text is found during the renovation work, assuring um, everyone who visits the sanctuary that they will receive divine favor. And most sensationally of all. Yeah. The black stone is found. It's dug up. Oh, so the black stone until this point had been lost or according hidden. to according to this version, right? Uh, it's it's dug up. The whole sanctuary begins to to um, to tremble, and on the stone, it's said, is stamped the name and title of God. I am Allah, the Lord of Baca. So palpable signs that this project of renovation is blessed by God and is indeed taking the Muslim people back to the primordial beginnings of the prophetic tradition. So yeah. uh, Ibn al-Zabar has clearly made the right decision. Meanwhile, however, the Umayyads have, have basically, they've patched things up and uh, one of them has established his rule over uh, the Fertile Crescent and the provinces beyond. And this is a man who uh, very much featured in our episode on Muhammad, Abdul Malik. Oh, yes. Yeah. Abdul Malik, uh, he's, he's centered in Syria. Um, he, he very much regards Jerusalem as a holy city. Um, he builds the Dome of the Rock, so the great building on on the the ancient Temple Mount. Uh, people, you know, if you think of Jerusalem, they, the 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 great building with the golden dome, that's the Dome of the Rock. Um, and it becomes an object of pilgrimage while people are unable to visit the Kaaba, the sacred house in the desert. Um, but clearly, if if Abdul Malik is going to claim the rule of the entire caliphate, the entire Muslim world, he cannot allow Ibn al Zubayr to maintain his control over the Kaaba. So in 691, he sends an army against, uh, against Ibn al-Zubayr. There's a six-month siege. The catapults are wheeled out. And once again, the entire structure is uh, reduced to rubble. And the defenders are killed, Ibn al-Zubayr among them. Um, and Abdul Malik takes control of you know, the shattered sanctuary. And even though Abdul Malik is now, um, you know, he has no rival as, as caliph, as the deputy of God. There are lots of Muslims who, who damn him as the man who destroyed the sacred house of God. And there are, uh, mayor propagandists have to kind of deal with this. And so they, they say that actually 
the van, the true vandal had been Ibn al Zabayah. Because he'd knocked it down before. Because he'd knocked it down. Yeah. And the Abdul Malik, in rebuilding it, he is the one who's now restoring it to its pristine condition. So that's what he does. Right. And in 693, he goes on pilgrimage to the Kaaba. Uh, he, he rebuilds it yet again. And basically, this is the structure that, that exists now. Um, it's it's built either by Ibn al Zabayah or by Abdul Malik. Uh, yeah. you know, th- th- there is debate about you know, th- these stories are so complicated that it's 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 hard to be sure. But basically, that seems to be the kind of upshot. And um, Abdul Malik is now he has control over the, the Dome of the Rock, so um, that's the house of uh, the revered house on the Mount of Jerusalem, as it's called, and he has the house of God. Mm-hmm. And so, to us, a poet. At his court, says, talking about Abdul Malik, belong the two houses. And Abdul Malik is a tremendously impressive state builder, isn't he? I mean, he is the Completely. Umayyad caliph yes. to sort of support because he has a introduces the currency and an army, and you know he sort of welds the whole thing into an empire. He also seems to be the one who um, really starts to hammer home the significance of Muhammad as the prophet of God. So he he puts Muhammad's name. Uh, on his coins, he puts Muhammad's name on the on the dome of the rock, and these are the first mentions of Muhammad that you get from a kind of you know a, a central imperial figure within the within the emergent cal- caliphate. Right. And in time, the the role that 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 Abdul Malik had ascribed to Jerusalem as kind of one of the great sacred centres comes to be downplayed. It, 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 Jerusalem comes to slightly be put in the shadows, and. Um, it, it, it's put in the shadows by the rituals of the Hajj, by the sacred geography of Mecca, and you know absolutely by the eighth century, by the ninth century, the centrality of of the Hajj and of Mecca and of the Kaaba is is indisputable. Everybody knows right. where it is. Everybody knows that it's the great central pilgrimage. It's still subject to occasional desecrations. So in nine thirty, you have a, a an army of militant Shiites. So, you know, Sh- Shiites are one of the, that would be regarded by mainstream Muslim Sunnis as kind of heretical sect. Um, any Shiite listeners, apologies for that, that description, but I'm adopting the perspective of the, the, um, the Sunni guardians of, uh, of, of the Kaaba. So militant Shiites, they attack Mecca and they, a bit like, um, the Elamites making off with the statue of Marduk, they make off with the black stone, which is very bad form. Yeah. Um, and by this point, the Umayyads um, have been toppled and replaced by the Abbasids, um, yeah. who as as the kind of the ruling dynasty, and the Abbasids have to ransom it back, which they do um, about kind of a couple of decades past, and they 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 cough up and get the black stone back. Um, and then in 1626, there were floods in Mecca, and the uh, the walls of the Kaaba collapse, and they're rebuilt with granite stone. Um, and so that basically is a structure that is still standing there to this day. So the question is. If you're not a Muslim, yeah, what on earth are you to make of that story? So maybe we should take a break and you can <laughs> yeah, kind of gird your loins and then um, yeah. you can tell us what a non-Muslim would make of all this story um, after the break. So if you're a Muslim, I suppose you can stop listening now because yes, I mean, absolutely. you don't care. But um, if you're not, come back after the break and uh, Tom will solve the mysteries. I, well, I won't solve the mystery, Dominic, because I think it's absolutely essential to say that, that I think the solution to this to this mystery is yeah. beyond the ability of right. secular historians to answer. Well, what a selling point. Come back after the break and Tom won't solve the mystery. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. 
For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on the rest of history, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash restishistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash restishistory. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking about the Kaaba, the sacred site at the center of Mecca. Uh, Tom Holland, in the first half, you explained the traditional Islamic account of the Kaaba's origins and its nature. So obviously it's a very, you know, it's always difficult, isn't it, for non-Muslim historians getting into the the early history of Islam because you're sort of balancing the the, the desire to be, as it were, respectful with the sort of the sceptical mindset that we br- bring to any other period of history. But I, th- I think it's also the problem is, is that, that essentially the Muslim account is the only account we have. Right. So that's the problem. Yeah. The explanation of why the Kaaba is sacred is rooted in a history that reaches back to the beginnings of the world and figures who will be entirely familiar to, to Christian or Jewish listeners, but who are not generally accepted by historians as having been historical. As in so, Adam. As in Adam, but yeah. also in Abraham. You know, Abraham is, is I think, not generally viewed as a, a historical figure. Yeah, because we have no archaeological evidence that somebody called Abraham was strolling around, you know, the Levant or whatever. So, so that's an issue. But there's also a kind of additional problem. I mean, if, if Mecca is this great center of pilgrimage and the Kaaba is, you know, is this incredibly sacred spot, even if it's become a pagan center of, of ritual. There doesn't seem to be any mention of it whatsoever outside the Muslim tradition. But where would such a mention, Eastern Roman, Persian accounts or something, that this is the thing that the Arabs do? Ever since the 17th century, uh, there have been scholars who've argued that there are references to it in the classical geographers. So um, there's a historian, Diodorus Siculus, yeah. writing in the first century, who writes about a temple much revered by the Arabs. And in the 17th century, this this was argued by Christian scholars that this might be a reference to Mecca. But the problem is, is that Diodorus Siculus, when he's writing about this, is pretty clearly, well, I mean, it's not pretty, he, he is clearly writing about Northwest Arabia and Mecca is in the, the region called the Hejaz, which is kind of more central. So mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to work. Uh, Ptolemy, the great geographer, he writes to a place called Makaraba. And there are still scholars who think that that might be a reference to Mecca, but the, the etymology doesn't really work. And I think, again, pretty much the consensus of, of uh, secular academics is that this, is, again, is not a, a reference to Mecca. And in fact, um, you know, the earliest unambiguous reference to Mecca um, in ancient literature outside the, the, um, the, the, the Quran 
is 741 in something called the Byzantine Arab Chronicle. And then it's located in Mesopotamia and not in the Hejaz. So what you have the sense there is of, of a city that is kind of floating around, that it's, it's, yeah. it's a bit like Camelot. I think we talked about this in the episode on, on Muhammad. No, Muhammad, yeah. So all of that is, is kind of tricky. Um, and again, if you look at the Quran, which is indisputable, you know, this is the prime source. This is where ultimately the traditions about the Kaaba come from in Islam. Does Bakr equal Mecca, i.e. Mecca? Again, I don't think it's entirely self-evident that it is. So one, one, one thing that slightly quizzed the pitch is that Bakr is actually mentioned in the Psalms. So there's, there's, uh, in Psalm 84, you get, blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them. Those who passing through the valley of the Bakr, they make it a spring. Yeah, but that could, could be a coincidence though, Tom. I mean, could it's be, not it like- could, it could absolutely be a coincidence, but equally it might not be. Okay. Uh, and presumably if it's not, then that is, you know, the Psalmist is not going to be referring to somewhere in the middle of Arabia. So that's no. a, that's a complication. And then you have the, 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 the kind of peculiar fact that the, the, the Kaaba is a cube, and it's peculiar because cubes seem to have had a, a peculiarly, and again, I'm going to use the word, sacral hold on, on the Arabs right. but for centuries before the coming of Muhammad. Um, and it, it covers a huge geographical spread. So you have Christian writers who, um, you know, they're looking at Petra, regions like that in the um in the northwest of arabia and they um they describe the arabs worshiping cubes as incarnations of their gods um again christian writers not necessarily very reliable um you know they're they're projecting things onto the people that they're writing about but i mean it is a kind of intriguing coincidence and anyone who's been to petra will i'm sure have seen these kind of strange cuboid structures um, raised up on rocks as you go down towards the uh, the site of the city, and in the south as well. I mean, there's an absolutely intriguing Kaaba, uh, another Kaaba, which um, appears in a place called Najran, which in the early sixth century was the site of a massacre of Christians by a Jewish king. I mean, again, it's all kind of very weird. There's a Jewish yeah. king in the south of south of Arabia, and he massacres these Christians, and and they raise a huge. Um, they raise a, a shrine in honor of these martyrs and they call it the Kaaba. So what I think you're getting with this is a sense that cubes have some kind of significance for the yeah. Arabs in a way that we don't entirely understand. And then there's a third question, which is the Makam Ibrahim. So the, the, the place where the standing place of Abraham. And is that to be identified with the stone that stands next to the Kaaba in Mecca? And I, again, there's kind of problem with that because in late antiquity the period when um the quran seems to have been written all the traditions about abraham are associating him with the, the desert regions beyond the holy land yeah uh there are absolutely no traditions that link him to the hijaz to mecca it's all slightly tricky but the the, the idea that bakr is mecca that mecca stands in the hijaz that abraham went there these are all propositions that come to be completely taken for granted by the biographers of Muhammad, by commentators on the Quran, and so on. And essentially, that is the state of play. You, you know, if you if you're a Muslim, you believe that. If you're not a Muslim, then I think you say, well, don't know, case not proven. But Tom, in the in the 1970s, and then afterwards, there was a school, wasn't there, of kind of um, non-Muslim revisionist history 
which sort of argued i'm going to i'm going to massively sort of simplify this that that they argued that a lot of what we think about islam was actually constructed much later um further west after a lot of the conquest has happened and then sort of retrofitted to create this this um this new ideology yeah that would bolster this new arab empire so if that's the case then is it possible and i'm i mean i'm saying this with absolutely no knowledge at all bar you know a week's study 30 years ago when i was an undergraduate is it is it possible that the kaaba was constructed much later let's say at the late 7th century when people were fighting over mecca um it, 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 could well, it all come from there could it have been basically as it were you know i don't want to use the word artificially but you know what i mean could it have all been invented as it were then People who listened to our episode on um, Roman holidays may remember that we talked about Christian pilgrims in the fourth century going to the Holy Land. And basically people would say, oh, this is the house of Peter or, you know, this is where such and such a miracle happened. Yeah. And the sacred geography is basically invented. But I think the really key figure is Constantine and his mother, Helena, identifying the the true cross of Christ, which enables them to work out where the tomb of Jesus was. Um the site of Golgotha, the place where Christ is is uh, is crucified, and to build the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and because he, you know, there had been presumably various shrines associated with that, but because Constantine brings the heft of a, a Christian empire to yeah. it, he can absolutely identify it. And you see this also with Zoroastrian shrines in um, the Persian Empire, that emperors found Zoroastrian shrines from scratch which they then claim are you know eternally ancient yeah so i think it's it's possible to imagine that you know the same thing is happening in arabia that out in the deserts presumably there are a lot of shrines that have a kind of holiness i would guess any you know any oasis anywhere like that would have um, had a shrine a place of pilgrimage whatever yeah yeah, yeah. so so gerald horting who uh, is a brilliant scholar of this he he wrote, it seems likely that the Meccan sanctuary was chosen only after the elimination of other possibilities, that in the early Islamic period, a number of possible sanctuary sites gained adherence until finally Mecca became established as the Muslim sanctuary. And presumably what enables it to be established as the Muslim sanctuary is the fact that Abdul Malik has established his rule over the whole of the caliphate and has sufficient heft that he can say, this is where it is. And, yeah. you know, which in turn, you say, well, well, why would he fix on Mecca? Presumably, exactly. that's what I'm going to ask. So, yeah. so presumably, Mecca absolutely has this kind of holy power. It, it, it must have been one of the kind of ancient sanctuaries or one of the shrines that, that does have this kind of resonance, so that there are absolutely people who are ready to accept that it, it is indeed what Muslim tradition will come to say it is. Um, I think also... It, it, it's telling that Abdul Malik's father had served as the governor of the region and the general that Abdul Malik sends to, um, to defeat uh, Ibn al-Zabayah, you know, he came from there as well. So in other words, Tom, you're pushing the date. Sorry, there are dynastic reasons you're going to say, but you're pushing the date to what the six, eighties, nineties. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is several decades later than the traditional Islamic. Yeah, historiography would 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 attest. As I said before, the second half, I I don't think we'll ever know because there's no 
There's no definitive proof. But I think that there are trace elements of this process, if that is what happened, that you can identify. And, and that is that there is this kind of enduring sense of resentment that people feel towards Abdul Malik. He, he, he is damned as a, as a man who destroyed the sacred house of God. And, you know, a century on from, from his time, you're still getting scholars who are articulating this vague sense that the house of God might not always have stood rooted to the spot in Mecca. So there's this, this scholar who writes at the time of the prophet, may God save him and give him peace. Our faces were all turned in one direction, but after the death of the prophet, we turned ourselves hither and thither. Um, so, you know, who knows if that, what, what that, precisely is a memory of but i think also you get it in the sense of the strangeness that you picked up on you know there are a lot of stones and that they all <laughs> they're endlessly kind of shifting this way and that so the kaaba is it is endlessly being demolished and being rebuilt it's being you know demolished through all the stuff with the prophets with adam and, and abraham and so on but also within historical time with with um, all the various wars between yazid and and ibn al-zubayr and and abdul malik um the mosque that encloses it according to tradition gets kind of destroyed and rebuilt uh there's a sacred well there uh, uh, that that gets lost twice and refound um the makam ibrahim this stone with the the supposedly the, the imprint of Abraham's feet. That's always moving around all the time. It gets caught up in a flood. It gets transported by human hand. And then you have the black stone. And there are so many different contradictory stories told about that. So the prime story, I think, is the one that, that, that I mentioned at the beginning, that it's, um, it's one of the original stones that, that Adam used to, to, to build the shrine. But there is also a story that Adam had, had found it and transported it with Ishmael all, all the way, which again implies that perhaps the original shrine was somewhere else. Um, there's others who claim that Ibn al-Zabayah had placed it in an ark of the kind that Moses used to, to transport the, um, the Torah around the desert. Um, so, the sheer multiplicity of stories suggests perhaps a certain sense that there's a, a, a strangeness to the process. But I think also what obviously what they also suggest is a sense of awe before the potency of the Kaaba as, as an emblem of faith in the one God. So that if you're not a Muslim, if you're a, a skeptical cast of mind, you could say, well, this suggests that perhaps, um, the Kaaba, you know, it's it 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 doesn't have the kind of eternity that that Muslims claim for it. But you could also say, if you're a Muslim, well, this is indicative of the sheer the, the strangeness of this is indicative of of the mystery. If if what Muslims believe about the Kaaba is true, then of course it's strange because it's the it's the most it's the strangest, weirdest, most potent, most holy structure anywhere on the face of earth. So what would you expect? So All religions have strange elements. What, what would seem strange, unearthly elements to outsiders, wouldn't they? I mean, that's the, almost by definition because they're yeah. dealing with the, the realm, as, as you would say, of the supernatural. So if you are of a skeptical frame of mind, you, you know, you're not a Muslim. What do you think it is? It physically is, Tom. A stone cube made in the seventh century, basically late seventh century. Yeah, I think so. But but I think but I think but I think also um, clearly there there was a process of, dis- of destruction in the wars um, that convulsed the caliphate, and where exactly the house of God that Ibn al Zabayah 
identified. I don't know. I mean, it may have been Mecca or it may have been somewhere completely different. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, the shrine that stands there now may have been established by Abdul Malik, but I, we just don't know. I mean, there's no way of knowing. So basically at the end of all this, you've left us none the wiser. I mean, that's the, <laughs> I, I think wiser to the degree that if you were not a Muslim, well, I think even if you are a Muslim, there's a strangeness to it and a weirdness to it mm-hmm. that, um, you know, the sheer range of stories that are told about it hint at. If you're not a Muslim, then I think it perhaps complicates the history, the traditional yeah. account. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? I mean, all this stuff about the uh, early history of Islam to an outsider, to a non-Muslim. It is an absolutely fascinating historical problem, as we talked about when we did a podcast about the life of Muhammad, because um, there is so little that we know outside the Quran and the kind of tra- the religious traditions, and, that, and there are so few other sources that we can use to kind of, you know, to cross-reference and, and all that sort of stuff. And it's complicated by the fact that it became identified so quickly with a kind of imperial ideology. I suppose. Yeah. Is, is that is that fair? An imperial I think ideology? So. Yeah. I mean, Abdul Malik. I think in uh, in the episode on Muhammad, I said he's in in Christian terms, he's Saint Paul and Constantine rolled into one. I think. Yeah. Um, and I, it, it's very difficult to get bit back beyond his reign to a sense of, of what might have been at Mecca before his reign, I think. And just to sort of catapult far forward in time, I mean, obviously, you know, this is a podcast about an, uh, uh, an aspect of Saudi Arabia's history. And the House of Saud took over the Mecca and the sort of possession of the holy places and i think the 1920s their control has been, has been contested there was the siege of the great mosque wasn't there in 1979 yeah. um when militants islamic militants who wanted were fighting against the house of saud took it over for i think a couple of weeks or something like that um but obviously it's a key part of their legitimacy isn't it that yeah. they control the holy places and they control the kaaba and they've actually knocked down a lot of the other kind of early Islamic buildings or pre-Islamic buildings, haven't they, to make yeah. hotels and things for people who want to go on the Hajj yeah, to I visit think, there. I, I mean, I, you know, we're never going to visit it, are we? <laughs> no, it's, so that on-location walking tour, Tom, it's not going to happen unless something radically happen. changes in our happen. own no. religious sensibilities. Um, but, it is, you know, it's, 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 such a, it's a fascinating, fascinating uh, question, I think, not just for people interested in early Islam, but more generally, um, how... how how do historians from a tradition, you know, stand outside a given religious or mythological or spiritual tradition? Yeah. How, how, how do they engage with it? So, so I wrote a book on this in the shadow of the sword available from all good bookshops. <laughs> Very good. Um, but one of the things that haunted me as I was writing that book in which I came to feel more and more and more was that any pretense I had that I was neutral, that I was objective wasn't the case because my, you know, by, by not being a Muslim, that that's not a position of objectivity and neutrality. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a, that's a position as well. And how do you, you know, if you stand outside it, how do you cope with it? And in a way that's what kind of made me interested in the history of Christianity as well. Um, and more generally a sense that perhaps the very process of adopting a, a secular perspective alienates you from the very traditions that you're trying to write the history of, yeah. if that makes sense. So, Tom, what you've effectively done is you've plugged two books there. Um, <laughs> shameless. You? Yeah, so, shameless. So you've taken a sacred subject 
and you've and you've ended with a plug for two of your own. No, books. but do you, do you not think? I mean, do you not think that is? I think it's fascinating. I think it's the I, Tom. I think. I mean, we're not a historiography podcast by and large, um, but I think um, uh, it's a question that doesn't. It's not just confined to studying religious history. Because, I mean, you're writing writing about any subject. You could be writing about 17th century England. You could be writing about, you know. 1970s America, I guess. Yeah, 1970s yeah. America, or, or indeed 1970s Britain. And you are, you are trying, you know, you are, you are trying, you're pushing yourself um, to enter the heads of people with completely different experiences from yours. You're writing about ideologies and mindsets that are not your own. And you, I mean, it's the question that we're always asked, isn't it? By at book festivals and at talks and things, how do you be objective? And of course, the truth is you're never objective because you're always standing somewhere. You're yeah. always looking for somewhere and you're always you. You're always trapped in your own head. But there's some, I th it's kind of like to understand a butterfly, you stick a pin through it. It's that kind of slight problem that by doing that, I mean, you may be able to kind of dissect it and open it up and look at it, but mm -hmm. something's gone. Right. Um, that the very skeptical, the, the skeptical mindset means that you don't get the mystery and you don't get the, the beauty or the, the power of the vision, I suppose. Is that, is that right? I guess something like that. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. All right. Well, I didn't expect this podcast to end on such a sort of um, <laughs> metaphysical note. No. Uh, <laughs> this is not, uh, you know, this will never happen again, will it, Tom? I mean, no, surely. I apologize for that. This didn't I happen apologize. with the podcast that we recorded about the Costa Rican Civil War. Put it that no, way. No, it didn't. No. <laughs> No, it did not. But then this is, but you know, this is, this is a topic that, that is luminously holy to millions and millions of people. So yeah. uh, I think it deserves that degree of acknowledgement. Excellent. Right. Uh, so we haven't solved the mystery, as it were. And we ended on a metaphysical note. So everybody leaves <laughs> with honor intact. Uh, we will see you for more. Tom, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Well done. But, it, but the next one will be less metaphysical. Okay, I promise. that's jolly good. So we will see you um, tomorrow, in fact, for more World Cup-themed action. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. <laughs> <laughs>